0: Son of man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's a haunting question. You have your text open before you to Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 26. Uh, I'm going to be asking you to work very, very hard this morning. Uh, one commentary counts 300 different interpretations within this passage. Uh, it has to do with that very difficult uh, part where Paul says, The law was given through the angels. And an intermediary, an intermediary requires two, but God is one. What does that mean? There's 300 different explanations of that. You don't need to worry about 299 of them, right? Uh, We'll right? We'll just sort of dance through that a little bit. But I'm going to ask you to be thinking hard and working hard because it's important for us to get straight what is the authentic gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul has been talking about. We're about halfway through the letter to the Galatians. And as we've been reading through, we see how seriously Paul takes uh, the gospel and that you cannot add to it, change it, alter it in any way, but that this gospel comes from the grace of God. It's all about grace received by faith, and you cannot add to it. Uh, You know the routine. The false teachers had come into Galatia, they said, Great, this is wonderful. You've accepted Christ, you asked him into your heart, you were even baptized. But now that you've received Christ, you need to become a child of Abraham. You need to join the the movement of God and his people of Israel. You need to become uh, a part of the Jewish tradition. In order now to be a child of God, you need to be a child of Abraham. And so they were telling these Galatian Christians that they needed to observe the Sabbath laws. They needed to observe the dietary laws. The guys needed the surgery. Uh, They needed to be keeping all those little minute aspects of Jewish life that defined Judaism of that day. They said you must now be keeping as well the law because after all the law was given to the people, to the sons of Abraham. You want to be a son of Abraham? You have to keep the law. Paul understood the danger of that kind of addition to the gospel of grace because if you say well in order to be saved in order to be righteous before god in order to be accepted by god not only do i need to receive christ but i must do certain things there's a little checklist and i have to check them off so that when i walk into heaven i have the little sash and the merit badges on it that proves that i've done enough to get there Paul understood the danger of that because if that is the case, then none of us are getting in. If it is the case that you must keep the law, Paul said you have to keep the whole law. And it's not just that there's one little law out there that you might miss. It is that our whole orientation, our whole bent is towards sinning and is towards rebellion and rejecting God. So if you add law to grace, you wind up with just law, and that will condemn you. You'll end up living a life of fear. You know, there's two reasons that you do the right thing in life. Two reasons you do the right thing in life. One is fear of punishment. The other is love of righteousness. You know, there's a little box out in front of the schools here. Have you noticed that? Let me tell you about it and warn you. It works. Right, it's one of those little automatic cameras and it takes your, your radar reading and knows how fast you're going and, and uh, as you're driving by, you look in the rearview mirror to see if the lights have gone off. You don't? Thou shalt not lie. But, you know, but that, that little box is there because if you go through the school zone, it's double the fine. The thing pays for itself in about a half an hour. But as we're driving up the road obeying the posted speed limit, we come to that little box and we all slow down. Why do we slow down? Other than the fact that the car in front of us slowed down. But, you know, you're you're by yourself. You slow down. Why do you slow down? It's because you love children, right? It's because you love children and you want them to be safe. You want them to be able to come to school and have a, 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 a safe experience where they don't worry about getting hit by a car. You slow down because you love righteousness. Or you're afraid of getting a ticket. You see, there's one or two motivations. You either love righteousness or you're fearing punishment. The law inspires fear of punishment. Grace gives us a love of God and a love of His righteousness. No, we don't measure up to that. But the motivating force is love of His righteousness, not the fear of punishment. So that's what Paul's getting at. He says, "This, this is why it's important. This is how it it comes down uh, to your life. If if you want to live by law, you're going to live by paralyzing fear, that fear that keeps you from ever knowing the joy of your salvation. And so these false teachers had come into Galatians. They said, look, you need the law. You need to be a son of Abraham by the tradition of the Jews, by the law-keeping, and that's how you'll know you're saved. That's how you'll keep your salvation. So Paul writes about the authentic gospel. He says, no, this is a gospel by faith. What did he say? He says, I have been crucified with Christ. He says, I don't live anymore. Christ lives in me. The life that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is the authentic gospel. That is the gospel that Paul is writing about. And so as as he's coming now into chapter 3, we saw this uh, for the last several weeks, Paul's writing to folks who've been hearing from the false teachers, you need to be a child of Abraham, son of Abraham. You need to be a child of Abraham in order to be a child of God. And so Paul almost says, well, okay, but let's think about what that means. If you're going to be a child of Abraham, how does that really happen? You see, Abraham received a blessing from God. God did a mighty work in Abraham. He brought this guy out of the earth of the Chaldees. Google it. He brought him to a land that he would show him, blessed him, preserved him, and then a mighty nation arises out of Abraham for thousands of years, preserved and protected through the ups and the downs of their wandering through history. But they arrive here at the first century As the people of God, the sons of Abraham, God had done a mighty thing in Abraham. And so the question is, how can I get in on that? How can I get in on what God did in Abraham? How can I experience the blessing that God was giving to Abraham? How can I do that? And the false teachers had an answer. They said, well, you do it by keeping the law. You do it by, by uh, taking the commandments of God, making them a part of your life. If you keep all of them, you're son of Abraham, child of Abraham, therefore you will enjoy the blessings of Abraham. Paul says, not so fast. Think about what really happened. God spoke to Abraham before Abraham ever did a thing. God promised Abraham a blessing before Abraham had ever done anything worthy of being blessed. In other words, the blessing of Abraham came to Abraham because God promised it to him, not because Abraham earned it. And so Paul said, look, these guys have the wrong connecting point. They want to connect to Abraham some 400 years later at Mount Sinai with the giving of the law. You really need to uh, uh, connect with Abraham at the giving of the promise when God started the whole thing moving and started the whole thing rolling. So it's not by the giving of the law, but it was by the promise of blessing that you connect with Abraham. So that, that's the sweep of the chapter. We're in the midst of that as he's developing that. Now, put your thinking caps on, and we're going to read through the passage try to see what Paul has here. Verse 15, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, No one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, we don't need to get into the legal technicalities of yes, a contract can be amended. Yes, both parties can agree and they can change it. Yes, there's it. But here's the basic idea a contract isn't fluid. It is, it is set. In fact, in the first century, if you wrote a contract or a testament, you would write it down on a, on a, on a piece of uh, parchment or papyrus, and then you would roll that papyrus up, and you'd take the roll. You'd fold it at each end. Then you'd wrap string around it, tie knots on the string, do that between five and seven times, pour sealing wax on top of the knots, and that was the contract. You couldn't get in. After a while, people looked look at it and say, hey, what's in there? I don't know. We can't get in. Well, you wrote a summary on the back of it. You know, it so said this is a contract that says this, 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 and that, okay? Someday remind me to explain how that relates to the book of Revelation. But in essence, this is what Paul is talking about. Saying a, a, a contract, a testament, a covenant, an agreement is set. You, you don't just change it willy-nilly. Years ago, we had a guy, he handled our uh, air handling system, the air conditioner down at the old building where Best Buy is now. And uh, this guy had a novel theory of contracts, Uh, One time he came, he did some work, and he charged us, and I saw that the labor charge was higher than the contract price. I pulled out the contract, being a legal scholar, and I showed it to him, and I said, look, you know, here's the price of labor. He said, oh, well, I changed that. He took it out of my hand, scratched out the old number, wrote in the new number, handed it back to me. I think I had a case. I'm not sure, but I think I had a case. Well, we let it go, and we let him go. That's what Paul's talking about. He says, you know, you, you get this covenant, you get it, this agreement. It's not a willy-nilly thing, okay? It's got substance to it. And so he says, you know, think about it this way. In essence, in essence, a man-made covenant, uh, you, you don't just change it. Now, the promises, this is verse 16, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, but you're many but to one offspring, which is one, that is Christ. See, Paul says, look, when God made this promise about the blessing, he didn't say, Abram, I'm going to bless you, and a bunch of offsprings are going to be the channel of that blessing. See, if that were the case, if it was plural, you're with me here? Okay. If that were plural, it means that the blessing comes by matters, uh, simple matter, of uh, genetic code of biological descent. And so by the time you get to, um, say, uh, the first century here in Galatia, you say, well, the blessing comes to the offsprings, plural, and so it comes to all these, this plurality, all these these Jewish folks, and you need to be one of them before you get the offspring, uh, the, the blessing, and so in order to know the blessing, you have to be one of the offsprings, plural. He, Paul says, it was not offspring. Go back, read your Bible. God said, I'll bless you through the offspring, singular. And we are led to believe because the Bible teaches us that refers to Christ through one, through Christ. And so you don't share in the blessings of Abraham by being one of the offsprings. You share in the blessing of Abraham by being in the offspring that is in Christ. That's what he's setting up here. He's saying, look, and when, when God made that, he made that, that covenant, he made that promise to uh, Abraham, and it was all on the basis of a promise and on the basis of, the, of this grace, the promise of Christ. Now, this is what I mean, Paul said in verse 17. This is uh, what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. He's saying God doesn't change his mind. It's not as though God said, You know, Abram, I think I'm going to do this blessing thing through the offspring. Not changed my mind. I think I'll do it by law instead. God is one. We'll see that in a moment. And so the working of God is uniform, it is the same throughout his working with folks in history it's not like he has plan a plan b you know you can be saved either under the grace plan or the law plan uh you know depending on how many dependents in your household and that, you know, there's just one plan he says god promised grace through the offspring that's where the blessing would come and so the giving of the law doesn't break or terminate the previous agreement so that's still in place So, it doesn't uh, annul the covenant. Verse 18, for if the inheritance, that is the inheritance of the blessing, you know, you you don't become one of the heirs of of the blessing of Abraham. If the inheritance comes by the law, which is what the false teachers are saying, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. See, there's two key words we've encountered so far. And, and if you want to think about how wh- wh- where we're going with this, the two key words. One is offspring, singular. We've always been talking about Christ. That's what Paul's getting at. It's always been through the promised offspring, singular. It's always been through Messiah. Always been through Christ. The second uh, word there is the word promise. It's always been by promise. It's never been by performance. It's never been by keeping the law. So... Through Christ, by the promise. This, this is what he's, he's talking about. We're to Verse 19 now. Anybody need an aspirin yet? I mean, I, I told you, that, that, that this passage will work you over. But uh, hang in there. Why then the law? Now, if if it came through the promise to Abraham, why did he give the law? What's going on there? Why then the law? Paul writes, it was added because of transgressions. Now, that word transgressions is a uh, word that uh, refers to the specific violation of defined sins, if you will. All right. In other words, we, we, we are born, and by nature are children of wrath. We have a bent toward sinning. Uh, if left to ourselves, we just wander off into self-will and and to uh, self-directed lives. And so uh, there's sort of like this generalized sense in which we sin and and we just sort of rebel against God in general. But a transgression is when God has said, here's a specific way in which your rebellion is expressed, and we go ahead and do that. So he said "The, the law is given so that we know exactly what it is that we are doing that connects us to our sinful uh, estate that, that that highlights that, in other words, the law is like a like a floodlight. you turn it on and it puts our sin in sharp relief. You can see it, you can define it, you can diagnose it that 's what the law does it brings it into sharp uh, contrast with the righteousness of God. So why the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Reference to Christ again. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. All right. This is where we get 300 different interpretations. It essentially boils down to this, and we'll let somebody else work this over later boils down to this. The law was always sort of a, um, a filtered experience of God, if you will. The law was not the total thing. Christ is. Christ is the immediate presence of God. He is the mediator between us and God, but we are dealing with God, the Son of God. The law is, um, uh, it, well, he, he says here, given by angels... Uh, We read that also in the book of Acts and the book of Hebrews, uh, and that the law doesn't have the immediacy of it. The law points to Christ. The law points to grace. The law indicates that there's something beyond itself. Uh, Let me give you an example of that. If you were to open up your Bible and read the Torah, that's the first five books of the Bible. So you read the Torah, the Pentateuch, and uh, there you read about all the things God says, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Here's the punishment, here's the punishment, here's the punishment. But in that giving of the law, God also said, and here is the remedy. And it was a sacrifice. It was the offering up of life, the shedding of blood. And so in the giving of a sacrifice, you were looking forward to Christ, who is the final, the ultimate, the only sacrifice. He, Christ, is our sacrifice for our sins. And because he died once for all, we don't need sacrifices anymore. But under the old covenant, under the law, you were looking forward to that. And so the sacrificial system was a way to point to the grace of God and said, yes, here is sin, here is the punishment, but here is the remedy. It is the sacrifice of life on your behalf. And so that is fulfilled in Christ. And so what the law points to, Christ actually is And so that, that's the sense in which, in which we're, we're taking these verses. Um, not a close interpretation, but I think sufficient to move on uh, to verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Well, of course not. Certainly not. For if a law had been given, they could give life. In other words, if there was a competing salvation here. If there was a competing salvation where, well, you might be saved by the grace of God, or you can be saved by keeping the law. He said, if there was ever a law given that could give you life, then it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't be grace anymore. How does he phrase it? If a law had been given that gives life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So here's what law does. Law says, yes, you are a sinner in need of grace. Here's what Christ does. Christ says, uh, here is the grace of God in my shed blood for you on the cross. Okay? So they, they, they're, they're not competing. It's, it's not as though they're, they're, they're differences. The law points to uh, Christ. Now, before faith came, verse 23, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be uh, revealed. The key word in this passage is that word imprisoned. That's what the law will do to you it will paralyze you in fear Um, all right let's read on I'll, i'll come back to that in a moment it will paralyze you in fear verse 24 so then the law was our guardian until christ came in order that we might be justified by faith but now that faith has come We are no longer under a guardian. We are not under the law any longer. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith, through faith. Now, it is just possible that we have some Galatian Christians here this morning. It's just possible we have some folks here who have accepted Christ. You went forward, you asked Jesus into your heart, Uh, you were baptized, you joined the church, learned the memory verses, all that. But somewhere you got the message that God requires more than that for your salvation. Somewhere you got the idea that there's this law thing and that God is imposing the law on you and that until you measure up to that law, you are not really acceptable to him. I don't know where you got that. You may have gotten that uh, growing up in a church where the, the idea of preaching was to wag a finger in your face and say, you are a bad person. You have done bad things. Look at all the wrong you have done. By the way, that's one of the easiest sermons to preach. You know, just sit up saturday nights and say now now what did wayne do this week i think i'll preach no i don't have enough time for that sermon what did no okay but there's there's a kind of preaching that just delights in saying wrong 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 you know and sin and sin and sin look there is sin and we preach the ugliness of sin and we declare the pervasive nature of sin in the human condition But that is not the sum total of the gospel. The gospel is that we've been crucified with Christ and our sin has been put to death. And now we no longer live. Christ lives in us and our salvation in him is secure. But you may be a Galatian Christian and you've gotten this idea that God is up in heaven and he's just waiting to find some little thing I did wrong so that he can kick me out and and, and make me miserable about it all at the same time now the problem with that kind of of preaching and and, and understanding is that it it will make you feel just so inadequate about yourself you'll feel so inadequate about yourself and inadequate and you'll feel like a failure as a believer and so you won't want to share Christ you won't want to bear testimony to him you won't want to uh, uh, serve you won't want to minister in his name why because I am not worthy of course you're not worthy Here's the list of all the people who are worthy of Christ. But you get this law idea, and then you go to church, and you say, wow, that person must really... They're doing it. They're fine. God loves them. God loves them. I guess God can't love me because I'm not this superior sort of Christian that the finger-wagging preacher told me I ought to be. And that is a distortion of the gospel and a rob you of the, all of the joy of... We think we're a second-class Christian. Another problem with that is we begin to even doubt our own salvation. You know, how could God possibly have saved me when I keep stumbling so badly? How could God have saved me if there's things that keep coming up in my life? If, you know, I, I keep having these temptations float through my head. If I keep having these, these, these urges that, that, that fill my body, how could God possibly love me? Why, I have to do, I have to do better than that. And so we begin to doubt even our own salvation. Beloved, if God saves you, he saves you for all eternity. If God saves you, he saves you without reservation. He doesn't save you if you measure up. He saves you because Christ measures up. And that's the security that we have. But if we think there's law tempted into it, then every struggle and every temptation just sort of saps the life out of us, and we begin to doubt the very love and grace and mercy of God. Another danger is that when we mix law with grace, we begin to condemn others. You know? Have you ever known somebody like that? They carried their Bible, they got the biggest Bible they could. And that one big and they got a study Bible is what it is, you know. With them. And and that wasn't big and heavy enough, so they got one of those Bible covers, you know, and one with a handle on it. Because now when they swing it, they can knock you cold. (laughs) The idea is to go around and just point fingers. You know, God said, don't do that. God said, don't do that. God said, don't do that. Why are you doing that? You're doing that to deflect people's attention from yourself. You're doing that because you figure, well, God, if I can point out a bunch of people who are worse than I am, then maybe you'll skip me. See, that's what happens when you mix law with the gospel. It distorts it, and it makes it something burdensome and and ugly, and it distorts and it breaks our relationships. By the way, one of the real dangers with this is you get in a family where where dad thinks it's his God-given role to go around beating his kids up with a Bible. And then every time they turn around, he just smacks them in the face with a Bible— god said don't do that pow god said don't do that pow god said don't do that you know and this little kid he doesn't know that he can say dad god said don't do that (laughs) and this poor child grows up thinking that the gospel of jesus christ is all about condemnation that it's all about law keeping that it's all about rules and regulations that no one could keep that child grows up frustrated and either turns out to be some neurotic Christian who goes about beating his own kids about the head or grows up, and the first chance he gets, he hightails it out of there. And every time somebody tries to share Christ with, all he can hear is law and condemnation. Folks, if that's you, if you're a Galatian Christian this morning, it's all grace. It is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We have been set free. Now in chapter 5, we're going to talk about what that freedom means. But we are saved by grace. You now that, that's hard to grasp if you've grown up in a legalistic religion. That's hard to grasp if somewhere you absorb this idea that, that God only cares about um, what the, how we measure up and if we can be worthy of it. But it's the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Christ. That's that's why Paul's spending so much time in this letter to the uh, Galatians. All right, let let me close with this. I started with, with, with saying that there are two reasons to do the righteous thing. One is fear of punishment, and the other is the love of righteousness, the love of the holy righteousness of God. Adam and Eve in the garden decided that they didn't want to love God They wanted to love something else. They wanted to love their appetite. They wanted to love their desires. They wanted to love their own wisdom. But they didn't want to love God. And because they departed from loving God, they departed from righteousness. And then they came under condemnation. And the law shines the spotlight and says, hear how that is working out in your life. Here's what it is. from the very beginning, God promised, I'm going to send a Messiah, and he's going to save you from your sins. This law thing... It's so devastating to Christian life. You know, we teach our children a little song. It's called, uh, Be Careful Little Eyes What You See. Oh, be careful little eyes what you see. For your Father up above is looking down. And we cut it off there. Your Father up above is looking down. And if you look at the wrong thing, he's going to zap. Be careful little eyes what you see because your father up above is there with a super binoculars so he can see you in dimension. And he's, he's looking at you and the moment you slip up and you say the wrong thing, you hear the wrong thing, you go the wrong place, your father up above is going to nail you. And little children grow up scared to death of God. I mean, we do this to our students. You know, some, some of the, 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 the youth in here can tell me if I'm right or wrong. Maybe you've heard this. You know, a teacher stands in front of you and says, you know where you were last night, don't you? The youth is yeah, yeah, I know where I was. You know what you were doing, don't you? Yeah, yeah, I know what I was doing. What if Jesus came at that moment? What if Jesus came when you were at that party? What if Jesus came when you were drunk? What if Jesus came if you were with that girl or that boy? And what's the implication? What do you want the youth to think? He would have left me home. He would have left me here. He'd take everybody to heaven but me. Right? I mean, isn't that the implication? I mean, why do we tell them that? To scare them to death. And so the, 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 the young person says, look, I'm, I'm not going to the parties, and I'm not drinking, and I'm not doing drugs, and I'm not doing the sex, and I'm not doing any of that stuff. But what if Jesus comes, that moment the tempting thought comes through my mind? What if Jesus comes when my eyes are attracted to that girl? What happens if Jesus comes, the moment that I said the thing I shouldn't have said? What if Jesus comes at that moment? He's not going to take me with him. And they live in fear and they're paralyzed, and it's death. Beloved, let me tell you, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, when he comes, if you're asleep in the Lord, you'll be raised with him, but when he comes, you will rise to meet him in the air, and thus you shall be with him always. And the reason you leave the party and the reason you're not drinking and the reason you're not doing the drugs and the reason you're not doing the sex, the reason you're not going along with the culture and the language, the reason is you love Jesus who's coming again. Not because you're afraid of him, but because you long for him. Not because you're afraid he will come, but because you want him to come. Even so, come Lord Jesus. So keep singing the song to your children. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. For the Father up above is looking down in love, in love, in love. Oh, be careful. I just lost the tune. Debbie will finish it for me (laughs) when we get home. Let them know the Father up above is looking down in love and in grace and in mercy and in compassion. That is the authentic gospel. Law shows us our need. So so these words, the offspring Christ promised we are imprisoned in the law, but we are set free by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Bow with me in prayer, please. Gracious Father, whenever we're tempted to be impressed with our own righteousness or to inflict our own miserable level of righteousness on others, Father, break us. Turn us heavenward. Send your Spirit. Set our eyes on Christ. Father, I'm praying for folks in this room. I'm praying for that person who does not know Jesus. Let your Holy Spirit come and bring that grace that leads to the confession and the conversion. Father, I pray for that brother and sister in Christ who thought it was grace and law. Father, set them free this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit to live in righteousness out of love for you. And in all these things, Father, we want you to be glorified and honored and praised, all in the name of Jesus, by the power of your Spirit. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. i